This podcast, You Are What You Read, is brought to you by Book of the Month. Book of the Month is a monthly subscription service that allows you to curate your own original box of books each month from a selection of hundreds of bestsellers. Book of the Month features diverse and current titles for all readers, and they make their subscription options easy and flexible so you can spend less time researching and more time reading. Behind on your reading list? Skip the monthly selection and use a credit for a book the following month. Prefer to listen to titles when you're on the go? Opt for an audiobook. Book of the Month has a reading experience tailored just for you. If you're already reading most Book of the Month titles, try a membership in 2024. And because you're a listener here at You Are What You Read, you can head to bookofthemonth.com to get your first book for just $9.99. That's right, $9.99. Just use code ADRI at checkout. That's A-D-R-I at checkout. Happy reading. Dear listeners, you're in for such a treat. One, it's a sin to have favorites, but I have to tell you, Paul Theroux is one of my favorite writers of all time. And to take a deep dive into his work, you're going to have a lot of books to read. Uh, I don't know if it's a hundred. I don't know. It's getting there. It's a lot. But he's written The Great Railway Bazaar, The Old Patagonian Express, The Kingdom by the Sea. I'm just going to name a few of my favorites here. Uh, loved The Mosquito Coast, Half Moon Street, Under the Wave at Waimea, Motherland. Unbelievable book about a mother and her family uh, in Massachusetts. You got, you, you got to read all these. The book that I give and that I keep in my house at all times is The Tower of Travel. Because what Paul Theroux did for you when he became a travel writer, that was his first, that was his first really genre, nonfiction travel. And there's no one like him. Uh, the Tower of Travel, he... He basically researched the travel writers through the ages and hand-selected for you the most beautiful passages from their work. So if you want to go off and read about, about travel, you simply take one of the sections of the book and off you go to the library or to the bookstore and you're done. But he's also a really interesting man in many, many ways in that he's very curious he is never bored, from what I can see, and he writes in a style that is so beautiful and often haunting that once you start reading Paul through, you'll never want to put him down. Paul's originally from Massachusetts. He joined the Peace Corps to work in Malawi in 1963. He taught English in Uganda, and then he moved to London in the 1970s, where he set off on a train from Great Britain to Japan and back through Russia, which became the basis for his blockbuster bestseller, The Great Railway Bazaar. And over the course of his travels, he authored over 50 books in fiction and nonfiction. I mentioned a few of the titles, The Mosquito Coast, Riding the Iron Rooster, Mr. Bones, 20 Stories, and get ready for his latest, Burma Sahib. 
I first met Paul in our 2021 interview on Facebook Live. Some of you who have been with us forever will remember this interview. And I wanted to include a piece of this conversation in today's podcast. And just as I said, Paul's been all over the world and one place he remembers and a place that I share a lot of you are tuning in from is my home, my hometown, Big Stone Gap, Virginia. Here he is, ladies and gentlemen, the great Paul Threw. I wrote a book called Deep South. Mm-hmm. And in Deep South, one of the earliest places I went, so I drove from Cape Cod, Massachusetts to the Deep South, but my first stop was Big Stone Gap in your birthplace, I believe. I know, but I but I read that and I didn't see, did, did I miss it? I must you have. may have missed it because I breezed through, but I had always oh wanted to go. Oh my God, I, I, because I, I know the I whole rest for, of the trajectory when you went south and I was slightly upset. That was my first stop because I met a, I met a man, I was teaching at the University of Virginia for one semester. I didn't okay. like it very much. Virginia to me is the England of the south. It, it, it has airs from the water all through the Shenandoah, and then you hit the coal mining region, which is where I grew up. Big Stone Well, it's Gap. a very interesting place. But the Big Stone Gap. What when, do you so remember? When, when was, Who did you meet? When, well, I met, I was very interested in the coal. Okay. I was very interested. It, it was a very depressed place. It was a place right. that was very down on its luck because of coal. But I had met, a, in, in 1972, I met a couple and they they, t- they were taking their son to the hospital in Charlottesville and I said they said there's no hospital where we are and I, I said where where are you from this is 1972 right. she said big big stone gap and they were friendly people and they said if you ever come down there look us up so I never did but the name big stone gap That's the, crazy. the big the stone and the gap I know I thought, you know it's like a a Samuel Beckett play Big stone gap, you know. Or so I thought. Or I, I wanted a pair of pants. Oh, that's true. Yeah, you know, and um, yeah. but do you remember the name of the couple? No, I don't, because it was, sure it was. I, I went there. Are you sure it was a son? Their son was had a had a learning disability, and it was something that couldn't be addressed. In Big Stone, but he went to Charlottesville for that. Yeah, they went to Charlottesville because it was something very serious. And anyway, I stopped there. Uh, I ate at the, there's a local, there was a local, it was, a, it was like a, um, a supermarket or a market where they had food and you could buy stuff. And I had lunch there, I remember. I talked to people. I think you had it at the Mutuals or was it the Plaza Drug? I think it was the Plaza Drug oh where they had, you know, <laughs> so yeah, I, I, and I, anyway, so that was my first stop. I went from there to Asheville but but I just wanted I wanted to see what it looked like, and oh, on the so way. What I did you the, think? I thought I'm now in the South. I, I thought I'm now yeah. in a different. I'm I'm in a different culture. I'm in a different place. I'm in a place um, I don't recognize. I, I don't. You know, everything is different. Oh, the language. To the your culture. point. To your point about. The, we were talking before about how the Italians, some would come, make their purse, go home. There's an area by the river in Big Stone Gap that's called Italy Bottom. Italy really? Bottom. Because that's where the Italian coal miners lived. They made, they put all these beautiful stone walls because they were, 
this town was supposed to be the Pittsburgh of the South. It ended up to be just a little small town. But on that river were all these Italians. Well, my dad, who was very interested, you know, and by the way, Italians in our school were like, you know, we were hen's teeth. There weren't any Italians, really, except us. And then we found some up the mountain. So then we started to discover that people had shortened their names or changed their names. Oh, yeah. And, and, they, and you know, there was a kid in school that was giving me crap. One day I said to him, I said, I know you're Italian. And he stopped. Really? Mm-hmm. Very interesting. But I love the people there. I love Appalachian people. They're very... They're so decent, and they they, they, they are. Rap. They also they talk to you. And one thing I learned in the South was they talk to you. If you go to my hometown, Medford, or you go to Cape, I live in Sandwich on Cape Cod. If you say hello to someone, they'll 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 like, is he drunk? Is this guy crazy? He just said hello to me. What what, what you know? What's your? Pro- am I wearing something of yours? What is your problem? So. So I, anyway, after the South, I, whenever I went to the post office, I would walk into the post office and say hello. And, and people were startled to be addressed, you know, say hello yeah. to them. But that never happens in the South. In the no. South, I, the, you're always greeted. So writing a book about the South isn't that difficult if, if you travel. I was, it was a road trip. So I went all over the place. But wherever I stopped, I would talk to someone and people would immediately talk and, they, and they'll, tell you their story. And everyone has a story. And I, I thought, well, I saw it in Big Stone Gap, but then I went to Asheville, then I went to Columbia, Orangeburg, South Carolina. Yeah, yeah. Now, South Carolina is one, it's one of the poorest places I'd seen, but then it gets poorer. You get to Alabama and it's poor, and then you get to Mississippi Delta, and it's even poorer than Alabama. So, but, but that doesn't mean the people aren't friendly and happy and in, in their way fulfilled they're just overlooked. And I realize the South is the most overlooked place. And you come from the most overlooked place. So that's a great place to come from because it's a place to write about. What do you want to write about? Write about a place that everyone knows, New York City or whatever. No, you want to write a place where the people have never been able to tell their story. Paul Threw is an author in search of a destination, but finds the real story on the way there with his fellow passengers. From Big Stone Gap, Virginia, to Burma, a place we discuss in this conversation in Paul's latest novel, Burma Sahib. He explores one of English literature's most beloved and controversial figures, George Orwell. We begin our conversation with the books Paul remembered from his childhood. So I want to start with this. Were you read to as a child and who read to you? I was read to as a child by my father, who was a great reader. My father actually read history rather than novels, but he had um, favorite novels. Treasure Island was one of them. And any, my older, I have two older brothers, Alexander and Eugene. And when, when we went to bed, he used to read us chapters from Treasure Island. And we, ha- we had a sign in our bedroom, the Benbow Inn. You remember that? Jim yeah. Hawkins goes to the Benbow Inn. Yeah. So he called it the Benbow Inn. So he read that. He read the Deer Slayer. Um, very early on, we read a, he read a, um, a Boone Island. It's about it's a strange book by Kenneth Roberts about cannibalism. Uh, well, they 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 off the off the, the the main coast, but it was local. My father had certain touchstones in New England, and um, so certain 
people. So Hannah Dustin, Hannah Dustin scalped. She was captured by the local Indians, and she 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 burst out her uh, out of her captivity and scalped them and went. And there's a statue to her in Haverhill, Massachusetts. So he read about that. So yes, I was read to, and then that was my love of reading. And uh, then I became a reader myself, and reading made me a traveler. So. I mean, if you don't read, to, children need to be read to. I think, you know, most parents do read to them. But then you need a challenging book, too. I mean, a real book. So Treasure Island was it for me. And, you know, it has everything in it. It has, it has um, Long John Silver. It has treasure. It has a treasure map. It has travel. It has pirates. You know, it's just a wonderful book. And a very atmospheric, I think, I think in your writing, um, it, the atmospheric descriptions of the places where your characters live, where they go, where they travel to, where yeah. you travel to, that's all in Treasure Island. That yeah, is. You think about it. All of that color and daring do, and you could feel the sweat and the mosquitoes and the bees. and the Also, you know, Robert Louis Stevenson was a fantasist, so he wrote that book before he traveled. He, he as you probably know, he was married to an American woman whom he met in Europe. And so he was in England and his parents somewhat disapproved. She was American. Oh, she was divorced too. But he, this, he wrote Treasure Island before he saw an island, before he went to the South Sea. So he wrote that in Bournemouth and then um, went to the States. He was in Saratoga Spring. Then it was in San Francisco, Monterey. Um, and Silverado, place like that. Then he went to Hawaii. He was here. I'm in Hawaii now. He was, you know, down the road here. And then he was looking for a place to go. So he went to Australia. He had a ship. Then he ended up in Samoa. But when he was in Edinburgh, in cold, rainy Edinburgh, he wrote a poem. I would like to rise and go where the golden apples grow, where beneath a sunny sky golden ships in Lagoon's Lie, something like that. Because anyway, he wrote this. I should like to rise and go where the golden apples grow. And he went. He was fantasizing. So when he's in Scotland, he's dreaming of the South Seas. Well, when I was in Medford, Massachusetts, in my bedroom, my father reading Treasure Island, I was thinking, how can I go? I joined the Peace Corps. I went to Central Africa. And when I, went, when I was chosen to go to Central Africa, I said to my father, he said, what's up? I said, in 1963, it was September 1963, I said, I'm going to Central Africa. I'm going to Nyasaland. He said, great. What parent would say, great? My father said, great. I, I mean, totally encouraged. He wrote me letters. What's it like? Tell me about it. I mean, that's 60 years ago, 60 years ago. And I can tell you that it was a colony. But apropos of my the novel that you've just praised, thank you very much. I Burma Sahib. Burma Sahib. Burma Sahib. Are, I was in a I was in a British colony, Nyasaland, and which, so by the I, way, is a much better title than than the title that George Orwell actually wrote years later, Burma Days. What, what was it? Burmese Days. Burmese Days. Yeah. But, yeah. Burmese um, Days. Well, that was his, that was his first. Much novel. better. If that was yeah, but it was novel. a crappy title. I mean, Not what does it mean? Maybe, maybe, yeah, maybe. But but anyway, what I'm saying is that people say, you might say, how can I relate to it? Well, I can relate to it very easily. First. I was 21 years old. I was in a British colony. The Union Jack was flying, and the local sports club did not allow Africans to join. So it was segregated 
society. It was, and, and then seven months later, it became independent. It became the independent um, uh, Republic of Malawi. But I was a teacher there in the bush, so I could relate. You know, Orwell went to Burma when he was 19 years old. He became a policeman. People say, how can you relate to that? I can easily relate to that. All the, the responsibility that you get as a young person in a British colony, but except that he had just been to Eton. He graduated from Eton College. All his friends went to Oxford. Cyril Connolly, guy called Runciman, Christopher Hollis. Evelyn Waugh was same age. Evelyn Waugh was in Oxford at the same time. Orwell didn't go to college, didn't go to university, rather. He went to Burma. He's 19. He's got a gun. He's 19 years old, you know, and he's a policeman. Can you imagine? And so they also, he was an outsider, though. He was he was a kind of a shrimpy guy, right? He was, he was, he was not strong. Tall. He was very he tall. Was tall. He, he was like a willow. He was like a yeah. willow. He was yeah. thin, and but not substantial. And people thought well, he was weird. He was an outsider. He was an outsider. First, he was hot, very well-educated. He was very smart. He was very shy. He blushed easily. Being tall and conspicuous bothered him. But he had a lot of responsibility. I mean, it, it, it's a bit, it's worse than being in the army because if you're a policeman in Burma, you have, you, you're commanding local Burmese and Indians in your, in your solving crimes and they're wicked crime, rape, murder, you know. You, you have to supervise the hanging of people. He supervised the hanging. Uh, he wrote an essay called A Hanging. But what I was going to say was if you read a biography of Orwell, and I read seven biographies of Orwell for this, the shortest chapter in any Orwell biography is his, about his time in Burma. It's only about 10 or 15 pages at the most. Well, I got a 400-page book out of it, but he, he, alludes, he alludes to his time in Burma a lot. And so I could relate to it as a young person living far away from home with responsibility. Okay, um, you sort of tracked yourself because you could relate to somebody at 19 going to a place, doing, ha having to be a leader in a place when you're still a kid in a certain way, and having to take charge. Were yeah. you the outsider he was? Because I, in my reading of Paul through, here's what I notice. In your novels, I'm going to go with the novels, not the nonfiction. A sense of a man. He's never in the main. He's always on the fringe. Because he got the message somewhere in his life that he didn't measure up. It can be cultural. It can be the, the British Empire. And he feels like he doesn't measure up to what he's the kind of man he's supposed to, to be. But this is interesting. However, in your hands, rejection and judgment are a challenge to the character. Yeah. He has to prove what he's made of. He has to find his talent. He has to shore up his strength and abilities. And sometimes he seeks love to sustain him. Yeah. Here it is in a nutshell. How do you become the person that you want to be. How do you become, how do you go from being a schoolboy at Eton and a mm -hmm. policeman in Burma mm -hmm. to the author of 1984? How do you become a left-wing, anti-colonial, very monastic, stoical, very poorly paid, unhealthy, Orwell died when he was 46 years old? Yeah, I, I couldn't believe he was born in 1903. Yeah. 
I, he should have lived. He should have lived a lot longer. Mm -hmm. He didn't make any money? No. No, not till the very, very end. He wrote 1984 on his deathbed. It was published when he was on his deathbed. He wrote it when he was, he was had um, tuberculosis. And um, so he was in and out of hospitals. But at the very, the very last months of his life, it became Book of the Month and um, made a lot of money. He married, he got married to a woman called Sonia Brownell, Sonia Orwell. In the, in the last months of his life, thinking, if I get married, maybe that will give me a will to live. She became a very wealthy woman. He died. He, he, always, he never had money. He never owned a house. He never had a car. His first wife died, tragically. Um, he had adopted a son. He was very poorly paid for the work that he did. He, he was a, a columnist on a, on a, on a left-wing paper. He lived in rented rooms. He wore very shabby clothes. Everyone, but how how did he become that person? Well, earlier in his life, the the formative years of his life. One one of the um one of the quotes in the book, where it, it's it's the epigraph to the book is: "There's a short period in everyone's life when his when his character is fixed forever." Mm. Okay, this is true of men. It's true of women. It's true of I think most people. There's a short period, and you, and that turns you into the person that you're going to be. I was going to be a doctor, so I was going to go to medical school to choose the great and the small, all well and me. But I was going to go to medical school. I couldn't afford it, so I went to Africa. When I went to Africa, I realized I don't want to be a doctor. I want to be a writer. And, I, and so I abandoned my ambition to be a, a, a doctor. And, be, and so that... Six years in Africa changed me. Five years in Burma turned young Eric Blair into George Orwell. Mm -hmm. And so the book is really, you don't see George Orwell in the book, but you see, I hope, the transformation taking place where he's tested. He really, he starts off, he, he's not anti-colonial when he starts off. He's just like a guy just joining the army or joining the Boy Scouts or something like that and learning the ropes. But you can see that all the way in, in, the, in those five years, he, be, he becomes anti-colonial. He has sympathy for the underdog. He begins to understand that, that the, the Burmese and the Indians have a grievance. And, and he has sympathy with them. And the more sympathy he has for them, <laughs> the more he, he's seen by his superiors as a very dubious person. So he wrote about this a little bit. So he wrote, he wrote Shooting an Elephant. Which is about him. Most people have read that essay. It's a wonderful essay. He has to go out. They said, "What should we do with this elephant?" And there's a crowd of people. And to show that he's a really good, upstanding British policeman, he shoots the elephant. Well, the elephant's not doing anything. The elephant has just had what they call a fit of must. Must is it's in, in heat, so it's trampling around. But but feeling the pressure on him, he shoots the elephant. Very bad thing to do. The elephant's very expensive. And so that's his disgrace in Burma. That really happened. He wrote another essay about a hanging. Well, I used both of those, the hanging and the Burma. And then when he was, he wrote a book about Spain. He talks about Burma when he's in Spain. He wrote a book called The Road to Wigan Pier. He wrote about his time in Burma there. All of it is about authority. What do you do about authority? Uh, how do you deal with authority? Is authority right? Is it right to have 
uh, power over people. And so all of this he learned in Burma. I mean, and so the book is about, one of the rev early reviews said, it's an old fashioned novel. It said ambitious. I've had very good early reviews. Notice is good. Oh yeah, old fashioned. So it is, it's, it, I suppose it's an old fashioned novel. It's not an experimental novel. It's a novel I want people to enjoy. No, it's a superb novel because it's a true coming of age novel. Yeah. About a young man that you can relate to who's finding his way. He doesn't have the gift of fitting in. He doesn't know how to do it. And yet he's given authority. It's so interesting because he's, he's on the fringe. He finds it hard to relate to people and make friends. Yeah. Why? Because he's, he has a moral sense. He has, he's, he has a moral sense. He has a sense of justice of human dignity, and he's constantly being forced to do things that are inimical to inimical to his temperament and to his moral compass. So they're saying, you know, uh, he supervises a hanging, he supervises whippings, he has to arrest people. There's a man he knows this guy is innocent, and he arrests him, and he tries to persuade. They say, no, 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 he's guilty, he's guilty, and at the same time, he's. He's hated by the people that he's dominant over. He's hated by the Burmese and the Indians. And he's distrusted by his superiors. So you talk about a man on the outside. He's between these two people, hated or distrusted by both sides. He's really stuck. But that turns him into Orwell. That, he's Eric Blair. That, that makes him exactly right. That makes him become that which he now understands colonization he 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 sees it firsthand and he doesn't believe in his heart that people should rule over other people and take their land and make them live the way that they the control aspect right he he, he starts to turn on his country is what happens yeah yeah right. but he did uh, he did um and then he wrote um uh, an essay about it my my country right or left he said it's like my mother drunk or sober but also along the way, I mean, he discovers drinking, he discovers sex, he discovers um, comradeship, with, with, he, he makes friends there. He meets people, who, one is an opium addict, but this is true, he really did meet an opium addict. So I, I, I found a lot of books which relate to him, but books were written at the same time or by people who knew him. One was an opium uh, addict who then tried to kill himself, and Orwell knew him. He's the guy called Robinson in the book. Robinson is a real person. He has a love affair. Orwell did have a love affair. Or, 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 his biographers always hedge around, well, maybe he did, maybe he did. Well, of course he did. He's 19, 19. There were brothels up and down the country. All you do, just walk in and say, you know, you're a British soldier. Yes, yes, come in, 25 rupees, there she is. So he did that. And then when he got married, he had an open marriage with his first wife, Eileen, where they went to Morocco and he said, you know, I, I fancy Moroccan women. She said, well, you know, go for it, George. Eric, she probably called him. And and so, I mean, he was, he wasn't exactly a womanizer, but he, he was pretty free and he was pretty priapic, let's say. Mm -hmm. And in Burma, you know, you're 19, you're 20 years old, women are available. Of course. I mean, of course, that's what he did. So the, it's, the book is about that. It's discovering the freedom, the pleasure of of a woman's arms, you know, I mean, just being with a woman and not being condemned for it. So, 
but he had, he's also policing people. So it's the drinking, the travel, the women, the, the comradeship, but at the same time, he feels like an outsider. I mean, he, he thinks this is not what I wanted to do. His father had been in the opium service in India. His father was an opium agent, which meant he supervised the harvesting of opium and they shipped it to China. Um, that was how the British Empire made money, as you know. You know that, right? Yes. Yes, I do. And that's also the reason for the Opium War, which the Chinese lost. And when the Chinese lost the Opium War, they had to forfeit Hong Kong. The British said, you lost the Opium War. We want money. We want reparations. We want Hong Kong. So they gave them Hong Kong for 100 years. And or 99 years, whatever it was. And his father was saying, Eric, you know, don't let us down. <laughs> Be a policeman. Don't go to Oxford. Go that's, to Burma. That's the father-son element I thought was so yeah, delicious. Yeah, but typical, typical. Like, yeah, you it rests on your shoulders. And I don't, you know, his father was interesting. His father was quite a bit older than his wife. Um, his wife is called Ida. And um, he was maybe 10 or 15 years older. So he retired quite early. Orwa was born in India. And that's then right. And at the age of one, he came back. That's to, right. To the UK. And, then, mm -hmm. and so he, he didn't know his father well. But his father was, he was very gruff, very tough, old, grumpy, and saying, you know, it's like a guy in the – kid grows up and says, I want to go to college. Your father's been in the Marine. No, no, no. Join the Marines. Join the Marines. It'll be the making of you. Well, yeah, make a Burma man out was of the, you. Okay, Burma was the making of Orwell. And I think it's kind of underplayed in the biographies. I mean, they, they skim over it because there's not enough information. But, but if, you, if you look deeply enough and imagine, it, it's easy to imagine the kind of life – that he had. And also I had another advantage, which I've been to Burma numerous times. Okay. I've been up and down Burma. And I first went in 1973 when I wrote the Great Railway Bazaar trip. So I, I was there. I went before then, 1970. I lived in, I was a teacher in Singapore. I went to Burma in 1969 or 70. I think it was early 70. I went, and it was, um, at that time, was still kind of a, like a faded, colonial relic uh 1970 how long ago was that that's 50 yeah years 50 ago. years ago yeah almost. yeah yeah so i was th that's the first time i went and then i went over the years because it's a it's a it's a military dictatorship now but they've they've had a lot of um political problems you know Aung san Suu Kyi and her father was a pioneer of the independence movement but anyway, so knowing Burma helped, having been in the Peace Corps in Africa during a, the British time helped, reading Orwell, and then kind of trying to figure out how did he become George Orwell, you know, change his name. Well, you related, I, I felt like reading this novel, you related to him. Yeah, I did. read your work you totally related to this man and i think 
uh, the great ones of which you are. You oh, might God. be the greatest. Yeah, you oh, are. God. Come on. Thank you very Come much. On. You made my day. Oh, well, I'm allowed to say it. There is always something in the work that is absolutely prescient. I object to old-fashioned. I think that's BS. It is not an old-fashioned novel. It is a- absolutely of the beating heart of the moment. Because Orwell, from the experience and from the story that you tell in this novel, became a person who might be the most influential novelist with 1984 of our entire political, cultural structure. After Burma, he had a uniform, he had a salary, he had power. After Burma, he became a dishwasher in Paris, a dishwasher. And then he became a tramp in London. Talk about dropping out. So imagine the effect of five years of being a policeman. He, he needed to atone for it. You know, you, I, I, there were, in the, I grew up, came of age in the 1960s. People did that all the time. They dropped out. Drop out, smoke weed, um, travel, go to the hippie trail, go to Kathmandu. I mean, people did that. I did it. I did it. I mean, I joined the Peace Corps, but then I, I, I was on the hippie trail on the railway bazaar. But he dropped out, so he became a dishwasher. So 1922 to 1927, he's a policeman. 1927, he becomes a dishwasher in a hotel, then a tramp. He did what um, Jack London did in People of the Abyss. He loved Jack London. He saw that Jack London just consciously became a tramp, sold his clothes, bought old clothes, and just lived among poor people, and became a beggar, and picked crops and so forth and just went and slept in these horrible um, little hostels you know um and then wrote about it down and out in paris and london well down and out in paris and london it was going he was going to call it confessions of a dishwasher and the guy said well eric this is um don't call it we're going to call it down and out in paris and london he said that's okay thanks eric and then blair said i don't want to publish it as eric blair i want to publish under a pseudonym. He said, well, he said, I rather like the, the name George Orwell. And ever after he became George Orwell. So he, he was Eric Blair, the policeman, then George Orwell, the dishwasher. When he changed his name, though, he was free. Yeah, that's right. He really was. And so then he felt he could write whatever he wanted to write. There are many writers who change their name. And Mark Twain is one. He was Sam Clemens. O. Henry was William Sidney Porter, and he was, William Sidney Porter was a jailbird. He was an embezzler. O. Henry was a lovable short story writer. It's the same guy, but it's actually two people. When people change their name, you know, when someone takes a pseudonym, um, Henry York became Henry Green. Henry York was an industrialist in the Midlands. Henry Green is an experimental novelist. Anyway, there are many examples of this. Oh, was but if you, a- if you had one, Paul, if you had a pseudonym, what would it be? I did have a pseudonym. I had lots of pseudonyms. When I, was, I, I worked for um, a while for a, a German um, magazine that I, began, I sent things. When I lived in Uganda, I used to send them reports about the Sudanese border and so forth. And, and my, they, I said, I can't publish it. On my, I was a teacher at McCarroll University. So my mm-hmm. pseudonym was Gaston. 
I called it Gaston. I was I was Gaston, and so they published. And it turned sounds out like a it, pop star. It sounds like a pop star in Paris. Yeah, Gaston. Gaston. Anyway, it, the the, uh, the magazine was from the German Secret Service, but I can't emphasize enough how the experience in Burma turned Orwell into a prophet, into an aton a, a person atoning, and someone who who was obsessed with the truth. As Paul Thoreau, yeah. from his travels through, because I say through, I say yeah. it correctly, as Paul through did from his travels, it made you, you have a fundamental belief, Paul, that if you see the world, you will be able to experience the world. And if you're a writer, you'll write about it. Is that true? Well, I think there's a Zen uh, teacher, Suzuki, saying what's wh how to be a free person. See things as they are. See mm. things as they are. Not as you want them to be or as, as they uh, seem to other people. See things as they are. You know, people used to go to London. When I lived in London, people go, and they'd say, London's so quaint. And I say, London is, Londoners are angry. They're uh, underpaid. The city is... Oh my gosh, you can feel it if you talk to readers. They're full of them. You could see inside of them is feeling, but they express none of it. No, they think that because they've read Charles Dickens or Henry James, they think, oh, it's a, well, I don't know if they do that now, but when I was living there, people would say, oh, it's so Dickensian. I would say, it's not Dickensian, it's violent, it's unfair. Um, the conservative government is destroying things. It's very, it's, people are very heavily taxed. And you get nothing yes. for it. The schools are terrible. It's not Dickensian. It, it's not Dickensian. It is the future. It's the George Orwell. It's like <laughs> George Orwell lived in London, and he derived his vision of London from of 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 the London of 1984 from being in London. But also, people, do do people understand that these class systems kill people? They just basically kill their dreams, their possibilities, and their potential. Do you think people realize that? Or do they just think, oh, I like the horses in the parade when the queen goes by? Well, they like the horses in the parade, but talk to an English person who comes to the States and ask him why he's there. He's there because he'll be rise by merit, that no one's going to say you have the wrong accent. They'll say, you know, mm -hmm. I mean, you meet them all the time. Uh, mm -hmm. what, what makes an English person happy? Explaining America. They love explaining America. They got very happy explaining America. You chaps, tell you about you chaps. Anyway, so the class system Does it bother is you? Does it bother you in a sense? Because so much of Burma Sahib is about this system that holds people, that, that guides people into their little lane. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, well, it is. So it, 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 it is. But, and it's damaging to people, but it was, but for George Orwell, who was Eric at the time, for Eric, he was fulfilling expectations of him. He didn't choose that. So he was also in a slot as that culture will do to people. He was yeah. colonized to go control those people. That's, That's why they like, didn't like it, him. It, you right. Know, a, 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 absolutely. A, a pretty good uh, analogy would be um, a young person in 1965 or six drafted into the army and going to mm -hmm. Vietnam. Someone from Mississippi. Oh, yes. Um, black. Yes. From Alabama. Mm -hmm. um, or could be someone from California who just got drafted. 
and they're a bit lost, and they go and they see what an unfair war is and the nature of American imperialism, actually. So it's actually, uh, it would, Orwell was like someone who was a, a soldier in Vietnam. And when, he, when the soldiers came back to the States, they realized, you know, they were lost. They were lost and they were rejected. And they didn't know quite, they, they, had, they had a very, very bad time. I mean, I sympathize with that. But so Orwell had the same thing, but Orwell had a remedy, which was, and, and, and it's a remedy of a lot of Vietnam vets, which was they dropped out they, or they became alcoholic. Paul, you they, were just a little too old to get drafted, weren't you? No, no, I could have got drafted. I was in Africa. I was, I was the right age. I, I, it could have happened. I was in Uganda. First, I was in the Peace Corps. Right. And then I left the Peace Corps. And then I left the Peace Corps in 1965. I was only 24 years old. 20, I was 23, actually. 23. So you, you avoid, you, by going to Uganda, they couldn't draft you? They could have they, drafted you. I, I, uh, yes, they, but I got message from my draft board, and I used to say, your, uh, your letter was delayed by the monsoon. Um, um, and, and then I had the chancellor of the university uh, wrote to them and said, Mr. Theroux um, is doing a set, you know, Professor Theroux, is uh is essential to our educational system and i don't know you'll let it go i i i delayed i delayed i stalled i delayed and then i Paul, got married Paul, can i tell you something i have a cousin it's my father's first cousin and he part of a big italian family uh from pennsylvania they were farmers and um made good in the uh in business they did very well but he was drafted and he went over there and he said, when we got there and we're in the jungle, it, it slowly began to dawn on all of us, each guy, like one at a time almost in that jungle, that there was nobody there for them, that they had been sent on a fool's errand. And I, when he said that, it was chilling to me. And now I, I, I'm going to look at Burma Sahib in a different way because he's the victim of it too of being yeah. placed some other place in the world where you don't belong, where they resent you and would like to see you dead and you're to control them. That's right. And he's, so Orwell discovered, he discovered that it's a racket. It's a racket. It's the, a racket. Empire, that's, yeah. Mm -hmm. The empire is a racket. At another point in his career, which you read in the book, Burma Sahib, he works in a prison. The prison is built by the British. It was built by the British in 18... I think 1893, and he was there in 1922. 20, he was there in 20, 1925. It's a panopticon. It was a it, it, it's a it, it's a round prison with a with a a, a viewing tower in the middle, a guard mm -hmm. tower where they can see the whole thing. Panopticon means all seeing, a bit like 1984. Mm -hmm. Okay, he was there in 1923. Actually, it's outside Rangoon, a place called Insane. That prison was full of political prisoners in 1923. And someone in the book says, in 100 years, they'll still have prisoners here. Well, 100 years later, it's still full of political prisoners. <laughs> so, oh, well, nothing has changed there. That It's the same prison. The government is just as despotic it's a military di dictatorship and one of the guys that i put 
in the prison there is called the monk Ashen Wiratu. Mm-hmm. It's a Burmese name, Ashen Wiratu. And, and Orwell says, you know, this monk Wiratu, we're putting him in prison. Well, I use the name. If you, if you look in, online, he's a real monk. He's in the prison. He's a, he's a living monk. I just used, and he's a, he was a, he's a rebellious, anti-government, um, nationalistic monk, Ashen Wiratu. He's alive. I mean, he's in, he's in the prison. All I see was in the prison. He might have been released, but he's a, he's a rabble rouser monk. Um, and so my other feeling is that the sense that Orwell had that, that Burma w- was, was headed for choppy waters and that, that nothing would substantially change with independence is, is there. But same prison, same country, same prison, Burmese um, Buddhist monks in the prison, and, and the government is um, a dictatorship. So there you are. So the, uh, uh, that's also something that, that he, he saw. But it changed him as a man, as we know. Were you looking, when you went to write this book, uh, Orwell, for sure, has a fascinating life and certainly a prophet. And certainly uh, one of the things I love about it and I think is really important is that um, I think it'll be picked up for by teachers in schools. I think educators are going to go crazy for this because they can pair it with some of his work. And then you, then you dive into who he was uh, when he was a young man. How did you choose this? How did you choose it? Because it's so choose to write about rich. It? Yeah. You know, a bit like travel. You know, the, the, the places that I've gone to are places that either haven't been written about or have been written about in the wrong way. And I think mm. when I went to, to take a recent example, Mexico, when I wrote On the Plane of Snakes, people were talking about Mexico as though it's some horrible third world country. Well, actually, Mexico is a highly educated place. Mexico City is full of composers and none of that, mm-hmm. Oaxaca and other places. And I thought, I want to go there and write about Mexico as it is. The same thing with the South. When I went deep South, yeah. around the South, I thought, it has, a, I know, you know, William Faulkner, okay, and all that. But, but I want to write about a part of America that hasn't actually been written about in a way that makes me understand it. With Orwell, I thought, I've read these biographies of Orwell. I started reading Orwell when I was in college, like a lot of other people. Mm-hmm. And then I was, I was, when I was in um, a teacher in Africa, I taught Animal Farm is like the classic book about dictatorship. Yes. Um, and, and the students in Africa, <laughs> when I'd read them, they'd say, they'd read Animal Farm and they'd say, oh, he's just like, you know, this pig is just like Jomo Kenyatta. Or he's just like... Milton Obote, he's just like Idi Amin. You know, they, they, would, they, would, they could identify the power figures in Animal Farm and, and name African leaders after them. So with Orwell, I thought, I kept reading about him in Burma, and I've been to Burma, and I thought, people who write about the, bi- the biography, they kind of skip over that period. And I thought, well, I can do better than that. And then I started reading about it, and I thought, well, I've never written an historical novel before or novel based that, on that's a historical. A, I mean, you're in a, you're in a genre that is so people are flocking to historical fiction. This is perfect moment for it. Well, I hope so. I mean, there's certain Orwell is having a moment. Orwell is definitely having a moment. 
People use the word Orwellian all the time. I mean, they use Orwellian. They sometimes they use it accurately and sometimes not ac not accurately at all. But um, And sometimes they don't know what they're saying. They say it's Orwellian. They say, well, what do you mean? You know, Because Orwell was very contradictory too. But I also thought, um, I can do this. I can do this. Because it's, it's it based on travel to Burma, mm -hmm. reading, reading um, Orwell, but also reading the books that Orwell read. So Orwell was how about, a tremendous. How about this? How about you have a chapter, The Secret Sharer? Yeah. I haven't thought about the, the Joseph Conrad short story. I haven't thought about that in 30 years. But it's true, you know, and that he has this sense. It's brilliant. He, he, oh, thanks for mentioning that because he's helping this guy and he's thinking, well, this is like Conrad. I'm like, doing, I'm doing what the guy did in the Conrad story. Well, but he's also, doing he, what you're doing too as a writer is you are, you didn't know these guys. They're, they were dead, some before you were born, but you're pulling, you're pulling them together. You're putting them under the tent. The, your influences, your literary influences, you are spending time with them yeah. in a very deep and profound way. You're using your skills as a storyteller and you're pulling them close. And this is what I want to get to. Is, is there something weighing on your subconscious about the state of the world that you felt you wanted to spend a couple years with George Orwell, also known as Eric. Did, did you, was there something that drove you to him because you're seeking some kind of a context for what's going on on the planet? Yes. Yes. Because in his time, when Orwell was during the war, say during this uh, in Burma, seeing colonialism, then later when he was a dishwasher and a tramp, seeing how the poor, he has an essay, How the Poor Die. He's also, so it, they die in, in, it's about a hospital in, in Paris. How do the poor live? How do they live? They live picking crops. They work washing dishes. They work in the mine. So he went, he went uh, uh, the road to Wigan period. How do coal miners live? How do they make their money? They're, uh, they're, they're down in the mine, in the darkness and danger all the time. Very, very difficult unhealthy way of making money then he's in the spanish civil war and he's thinking he's fighting on a trotskyite brigade and he's persecuted by the stalinists so he's saying he thinks he's doing the right thing how do how do, does an idealistic person fight he, it was a bit like if, if he was alive today and younger he, he'd probably be in the ukraine uh maybe as a journalist possibly as a as a guy with a gun so he was always involving himself in the events of his day as a miner, as a tramp, as, as a revolution, as a, you know, anti-Franco guy in Spain. And as a, as an air, air raid warden during the bombing of, of London. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I was thinking, yeah, what would Orwell think of today? You know, how do you inhabit someone's mind though? That's, that's the difficult thing. It's difficult unless you have a, a formula. So I was thinking, yeah, what would Orwell think? How would, how, would, how would he view today's events? And how do you get it to someone's mind? Well, my answer was read all the books that he read. D.H. Lawrence, H.G. Wells, Samuel Butler, Jeremy Bentham, 
uh, uh, E.M. Forster, and so forth and so on. So he, he, he's a tremendous reader. If you read the books that a person has read, you begin to inhabit their consciousness. What's more fun than meeting someone more enjoyable, more meeting of minds, than meeting someone who's read the books that you've read? So I, this is why it's very enjoyable talking to someone who reads books. You talk to someone who reads books, their frame of reference is very wide. D.H. Lawrence, Virginia Woolf, Rebecca mm -hmm, West, mm -hmm. whatever it is, Norman Mailer, whoever, you and, and you can relate. So you have the not only the frame, same frame of reference, but the same metaphors, the same sense of ex experiences that you've read because you're immersed in those books. So I immerse myself, myself in the books that Orwell read and also in the landscapes that he was in. Burma. The landscapes, the places. One of the things that came through in the novel for me that I felt was very profound is that he couldn't be, George Orwell could not be one with his spirit when he wasn't one with the land, yeah. wherever that was. I think if he was back, he would be horrified at the trash dump we've turned the planet Earth into. Oh, very much so. In fact, he wrote a book called Coming Up for Air about a man who goes back to his childhood home and what he notices is the trash. You notice the place where he used to go fishing, it's full of old tires, junk, uh, trash, garbage. Uh, uh, and he uh. says, I used to go fishing here. I used to catch fish. And he sees it's a mess. The book was published in 1939. Okay. He died 11 years later in 1950 before the explosion of post-war industrialism started really polluting rivers and really polluting the planet and the oceans. But he noticed it earlier than that. I mean, he, he, but he noticed, saw it. Yeah, he, oh, he sure, it sure. Way. What he, he always objected to fakery, you know, the, you know, something that was fake, something that was false, plastic. Um, and it, so he wrote about that a lot. He was always looking for authenticity, the real thing, the real thing, real emotion, the real thing, real beer, a real house, a real village. An unpolluted, a place where you could fish, where there, there were fish swimming, not junk in it. So he wrote the, the novel coming up for air is about that very thing. It's about the corruption of the modern world. And then he says at the end of the book, I don't think um, we will understand what's happening to us unless we're awoken by the sound of bombs. So it was, it, it, it's like the, the, the war is just about to begin for him. Mm -hmm. The book is not popular. I mean, I, you, 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 not many people have read, that I've met have read Coming Up for Air, but he wrote it, as I said, in the late 30s. Um, he wrote a, you know, a number of novels, Burberry's Days, Coming Up for Air, Clergyman's Daughter, um, uh, Keep the Aspidist for Filing. filing. He didn't have great, a great feeling for the, the novel. He didn't think they should be reprinted. Uh, the only book that he really stood by was 1984, and then the short book *Animal Farm*. The, the others, he said, they don't they don't matter. They, he said, my early novels are uh, no good, but they're, they're actually they're better than he says, and they all show a side of him. You know, he was he was growing, he was becoming he was becoming George Orwell, but um, 
but early his early books are like H.G. Wells. He loved H.G. Wells, and so the early mm -hmm. books are like you know the H.G. Wells character. He's he's from a lower middle class background, works in a shop, lives in South London, and tries to make a go of it. What's really wonderful too is it is is if you revisit 1984 and Animal Farm, and then you read Burma Sahib, you feel that you feel the blood flowing through both all of those. I mean, it, it's you captured his voice. You captured his way of seeing the world. And yes, it has something to do with your vast canon and the places that you've written about before. But this was really deeply personal. Yeah. And I believe that when it's personal is when it's superior, exquisite of the moment. I agree with you. And I, I also think that it's, this wasn't just an experiment in historical fiction. Historical fiction. Yeah. It's, uh, it was, a, it was a, a person I could relate to, a place that I knew well. And the feelings that he had were feelings that I have myself. You know, I, I, I found out about the world by going to Africa. George Orwell, uh, sorry, Joseph Conrad. But also when you were 19... As we, you know, we know from reading your books and your articles and your essays, 19 was a turning point for you, too. Yeah, and I think you related to him on that level. You, when you look over the swath of your life, you think of those particular ages you were when you had uh, Illuminata, when something came into your life that changed you. And that's what happened to him. Yeah, I mean, it happens to a lot of people who leave home. I mean, he was... He was in Eton. He was home. His father was very dominant character. And then he left. He was in Burma. Goes far away. Mm -hmm. I went to Africa. Joseph Conrad once said, I was a mere animal before I went to the Congo. Went to mm -hmm. the Congo, suddenly becomes a man. Suddenly becomes a person. I mean, mm -hmm. many people have written about it, men and women, about how mm -hmm. they become the person that they want to be or, or realize who they are. You go far, far away and you're tested. And it's a can be a difficult experience to suddenly realize that this is who I want to be, or, or this is, I'm now becoming the person I want to be. I shared with Paul when I first met him that if I were born again, I'd love to be Paul through. It turns out the two of us have a lot in common. We are both one of seven children and we're both in the middle. And the way Paul described growing up in a big, rambunctious home reminded me of my own childhood. Paul also happens to be half Italian. And with that, he has perspective on La Familia, I think we can all relate to. Coming from a big family was a great, it was a great, it was a gift, actually. Also, not having money. I grew up in a family without much money. If you have seven children, you don't have, even if Nobody you have Nobody has any money, money when they have a lot of rule. Oh, they can be. Listen, they yeah. will shoot straight with you. Uh, did you ever get a review that was worse than a criticism from one of your brothers or sisters? I got a review from my older brother, Alex, Alexander. He wrote it in Boston Magazine. It's the worst review I've ever had in my life. I mean, it was teasing. It, he, he was mocking me. It came out in 1996 from a book. Yeah, it was terrible. I the worst, it. So the worst review I've had was from from your brother. The rest of them were Valentines compared to that. I wrote a book 
based on my family. It's called Motherland. Motherland is about a very dominant woman, um, a dominant mother, someone very similar to my mother and a family of seven children. And by the way, my mother lost a child. Um, so there were really eight of us. There was seven was, of us. Okay, because we're five girls, two boys. You're five boys, two girls. Yeah. Oh, so you also come from a family of seven children. Yeah, exactly. And I'm the third. You're the third. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, yeah. I want to be you. And I don't know how to do it. But I, but I, 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 I know the eldest one in your family either became a doctor, a lawyer, or a failure. The youngest She's, was a. Yeah, go ahead. A, the youngest was adored, loved. Was a girl. Oh, the, the youngest one. Can I tell you the youngest one is, she. Well, she's a love. She's got four kids. The eldest is successful. She is, um, but she's, um, I think she would say this too. I mean, when we were, would have a photograph made, she would be like really turned out beautifully and yeah. kind of like we look like the cast of Oliver next to her. <laughs> yeah. But that's true because Body, she, shall we she the, the eldest, your eldest sister yeah. was an only child. She was an only child. So she that's would. So profound. No, but it's true. It, so she was born, and and all the energy went into raising her. And then the others kind of afterthought. So you had your the other one, and then you. But you were overlooked because you're number three. They thought Adriana, she's going to be all right. No one asked you any searching questions. <laughs> and then the others, they're just sort of. But then the youngest, the youngest is like the golden child. The, so the golden, and the golden child, the baby, and my yeah. brothers were very. Uh, you know, I, I, I would say about my mother that, you know, how they have those tubes outside where they're selling cars and to get you to come in and buy a car. My mother would be not, didn't have the fan on. And if my brothers came in the room, she suddenly was 22 again and did this one woman show at age 90 that she was <laughs> fine. And my brothers would come downstairs and go, she's great. What are you talking about? And we'd be like, You're crazy. The dinner table was constant talk. It was just talk. But one of the fun, when I wrote Motherland, one of the, one of the enjoyable things was writing about mealtime because mealtime in a big family is also hilarious. It's it hilarious. Is, it's so, hilarious. And then as, as my mother got older, when the, so my father died in his late 80s. My mother lasted till she was almost 104, as I said. So when my mother was a, so my mother's 100th birthday, <laughs> It was such a free for all. It was it was amazing. It was amazing. But uh, the, uh, so her hundredth, uh, that chapter it, it appeared in the New Yorker. The chapter it's called Upside Down Cake. Upside Down Cake kind of describes <laughs> the kind of cake you'd have if you were in a big family and a hundred. But so that chapter is Upside Down Cake. My mother's hundredth. And my mother was sitting with the eldest son on her right and the youngest son on her left. And the rest of us were at different tables, quarreling, teasing, doing funny voices, asking, you know, trivia questions. And then, so uh, there were strangers to the family. They, kept, they thought, where am I? What is it? Is this like a nut house? It's like, <laughs> they, they couldn't understand. Because also there's the, the private language of the family is also, um, it's, it, it's, it's very, it's very, I mean, you must've had it Were you special names Absolutely for things, special names for everybody. Yeah. But, uh, uh, yeah. Yeah. So, the, so the idea of a, um, getting all together, what in Hawaiian they call a ho'oponopono. Uh, I'm in Hawaii now, by the way, uh, ho'oponopono is where everyone gets together and they make peace. It's kind of a 
Pono 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 means. Well, that, that, that don't happen in Italy. I'm not a young writer anymore. Um, my last book was the Bad Angel Brothers, which is a, a family a feud between. Well, that was a couple of years ago. People say to me, "When are you going to retire?" And I say, "You know, why don't ask Bob Dylan that? He's the same age as me. If you love doing it, why would you stop?" I hope you all enjoyed this conversation, and I hope you go back to read more books written by Paul Theroux. I know it's kind of a chilly time of year, and I know we're all longing for an escape, and Paul's books will take you to places that you only imagined in your dreams. Please check the episode description for a full list of titles mentioned in this conversation, and if you enjoyed this episode, leave your reviews. Your feedback is always appreciated. Follow us on Instagram at You Are What You Read podcast for more updates and stay tuned every Tuesday for more exciting conversations with the great luminaries of our time. I know that you will become a Paul Theroux superfan as I have reading his books and hearing him speak about the books he loves. Thank you all for listening and thank you, thank you always for reading. <laughs>